Does language shape the way we think and ultimately how we behave as public leaders? What if that language and the ideas it contains has been written by white people, white men in the main? Does that have an impact on how society operates? Who is the global majority? I'm here today with three amazing women who've been exploring different aspects of race and culture, which all of us find difficult to talk about. At times, it's given all of us pause for thought and ultimately left us feeling unsure. We are sharing this conversation with listeners in the hope that you can start your own courageous conversations with friends and colleagues, because unless we're prepared to take that risk, we can't shift anything. In this conversation, we are bound to get some things wrong. We will probably fumble a little, and at times it may be clumsy or awkward, but these women have agreed to come together in what I hope is a safe space to have an open, honest, and courageous conversation. I'm Sherry Malik, and this is the Staff College Having Courageous Conversations About Race, Episode 1, The Language We Use Matters. Let me start by introducing my three guests. Rosemary Campbell Stevens was born in England to Jamaican parents of the Windrush generation. Her career spans more than 35 years in education, and in 2015, she was awarded an MBE for Outstanding Services to Education. She is currently a visiting fellow at University College London, a freelance international consultant, speaker, coach, and author on educational leadership. Rosemary visited Jamaica as a young woman, fell in love with it, and now lives with her husband next door to her sister and her brother and their families, all of whom have returned to The Rock to live a few miles from where her parents were born in Hanover. She's joining our conversation from Jamaica. Catherine Pereira is the director of NHS Horizons, which is part of the Improvement Directorate of NHS England. It provides expert support for programs seeking to achieve large scale change at local, regional and national levels across government and internationally. A barrister by background and a current door tenant at 11 KBW Chambers, Catherine is a US-UK Fulbright Commission Scholar. She sits on the external advisory panel of the History Faculty of Oxford University and is a trustee of two national campaigns-based organizations, Campaign Bootcamp and Act Build Change. Catherine is Irish by heritage and grew up in the market town of Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire. And finally, we have with us Joe Davidson, who is the principal of the Staff College since 2018. She has spent nearly 35 years working in schools and local authorities in different aspects of children's services, the last 15 of those as a director. Jo is now engaged in a range of development work to support local authority colleagues in improving systems and above all, improve outcomes for children and young people. Jo was born and brought up in Southampton by an English mum and a Scottish dad. As a merchant Navy engineer, her dad was regularly away for months on end to anywhere in the world which made Jo feel like she was part of a world as well as a place. Welcome all to this conversation. I'm going to start with asking Catherine to tell us about hearing Rosemary use the term global majority. Catherine, what did you think and how did you feel on hearing that term? Thanks, Sherry. So Rosemary and I happened to be in a session with the Staff College a few months back. And I was fascinated by some of the contributions that Rosemary made as a participant. 
As a result of that, Joe invited us to have a conversation together to learn more about each other's perspectives, careers, what we were working on, what we cared about. One of the topics that we started to discuss was the, the use of the term BAME. And in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the Black Lives Matter movement, there had been lively debates in the NHS about the use of the term BAME, um, which by the way, I loved the fact that my father, who is an avid reader of the Sunday Times, uh, quite elderly, um, asked me what these Barmy people were that he kept reading about. And uh, I was able to tell him that it was pronounced BAME and not Barmy. Um, so I think there's something about language in that. Um, and he was uh, slightly affronted that I was laughing, but I assured him I wasn't laughing at him. It had just uh, chimed with other conversations I'd be having, been having about language. So in our conversation about the term BAME, Rosemary said that she preferred to think of it as black and global majority. And my honest reaction, my heart sang as me, my heart sang because it feels factually more reflective of where I think we are as a, a people, a human race. And at the same time, my political brain went, that's never gonna stick. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I was feeling both those things simultaneously. So maybe Rosemary, you could uh, add in here the context to the, the idea and, uh, and, and why you raised it and why you introduced it, why you use it. Oh, absolutely, Catherine. That reference to your father, really makes me smile because I had a similarish conversation with my mother who um, said she was pronouncing it blame. So she put, she put in an L and she said, um, are they talking about us? <laughs> and I had to explain to her as you did to your, to your father, um, what, what BAME actually means. So that's really interesting about the kind of intergenerational stuff. But, but yes, um, Catherine, I've been using the term global majority since 2003. And essentially, I had been invited to design a leadership program for um, the University College London that was focused on getting more Black and Asian um, senior leaders into positions of leadership within London schools as part of the London Challenge Initiative. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was to look not just at the content of such a program, but the language, because for me, I found the terms that were being then used. And back in 2003, it would have been BME, so Black Minority Ethnic. They always seemed to minoritize the people that they were talking about. So that was the first thing. And then the, the, the second thing was that when you looked at the people that we were talking about within the London context, actually they belonged to the global majority if we looked numerically at um, how those people um, across the globe were um, represented. So for me, to be simple, um, global majority includes Black, Asian, 
brown, dual heritage, those people who are indigenous to the global South and have been racialized as ethnic minorities. And that makes the global majority. And when you look at those groups of people, that's roughly 80% of the global citizenship on the planet. So it's not just global majority by a small margin, it's a very large margin. Um, and then for, for those people who were a little bit concerned about it, I said, well, look, um, if we look at whiteness as a concept and really discuss what percentage of the world's um, life was lived through the lens of being white, then it came through to people that actually the global majority are not white. Whiteness isn't the norm for the majority of people on the planet. So that's how it came to be that I started to use um, global majority in 2003. Yeah. Um, of course, as, as Black Lives Matter, um, uh, you know, resurged in, in 2020, then it brought to the forefront the language that we're using to engage about race. And so there have been a lot of people who have been saying, right, um, can we find something that's actually more accurate in terms of terminology? As you've been talking, Rosemary, I think, um, you know, it's kind of my my brain is zinging from one end to the other and thinking, wow, this really turns everything on its head. Um, I, I just want to bring Joe in and say, Joe, what went through your head when you heard um, Rosemary use that term? The, I was like you, Sherry, that my immediate reaction was, was wow. Um, and there, there were two reasons for, for, for that. Um, the first of was, um, despite thinking that I'm pretty sort of switched on and careful and thoughtful, I rarely consider myself as a minority. And by using that term, it actually brought me up short and that I am a, a minority in this world. <laughs> and the, the, yeah, that and that brought back to me a few years ago. Um, we went to China, and my youngest mm -hmm. daughter was obsessed with uh, something a guide was saying, who kept referring to the Middle West. And my daughter kept you know, was tugging myself. She said, "Why is the Middle West? What are they talking about? Where's the Middle West? I've never heard about it." Well, no, that's because we <laughs> we we call it the Middle East. She said, it's not the same. Why are they calling it the Middle West? Again, from this incredibly sort of white Eurocentric view view of the world, and it was a real similar feel, feeling to that. So, so that was that that was my first uh, feeling, and then my second feeling was, um, what an empowering turn it is, hmm. because again, in that same way that it causes me some discomfort in terms of how that then makes me feel in my place uh, in the world, equally it turns on its its head everything in the language that is in you know, common discourse today in this country and other white nations, where we constantly other black people, we minimise them, we call you know, minority and, and so on. So I'd, I'd, I was totally on, on that complete spectrum <laughs> and then went through a, and how would we introduce this then into yeah. our, 
day yeah. to day world because I think it's then the conversations you, you you have and the reactions that it causes in other people um that I think it you know, builds the power of, of of that concept that that language uh and so on and I don't know because Catherine you I think you've been trying it out haven't you using the term yeah I have I've been trying it out in um NHS leadership forums so using it very light touch and in the main it's been received okay but I think if I think ahead to what are the barriers to using it um, or what might be my perceived barriers to using there is something for me um around virtue signaling that I think I'm conscious of as a white person. So for me to introduce a term when another norm of language has been settled upon, and when we are told by the kind of formal parts of the bureaucracy around racial equality, participation, and so on, that they have settled on this term. To use another one, I, I definitely am aware of a voice in my head, Joe. Mm. that says how do I use that other term with substance in a way that invites engagement rather than doing it to signal that I'm engaging and looking so how how can we do this as white people in a way that has genuine intent that creates space for our white colleagues and others to engage and enhance our understanding rather than it's seeming to be used because it's a, a sign of, of virtue. Yeah, let's, let's unpack that a little bit because I'd really like to ask Rosemary and just taking it back to, you know, because Rosemary coined that phrase, why did you feel the need for that? Uh, you know, um, what? why did you think that the terms that were around, I know we talked about BAME and BLAME and BAMI, et cetera, but ultimately, from a political context, because that's what um, I think Catherine is just referring to here, you know, there's a voice in your head saying, don't do it, because politically it might not be accepted. But, um, you know, in the context of your uh, getting that term together, why did you feel the need to coin that term now, uh, in this moment? Rosemary, that's... Oh, okay, um, Sherry, well... Yes, so one of the reasons why one of the reasons why I coined the term um, global majority was that I wanted I was speaking really to those people um, in the particular case in 2003, black and Asian people. Um, so they were they were my initial audience and it was really about them beginning to see themselves as part of the global majority and to stop minoritizing themselves that that was the first thing and the second thing to speak to the more um sort of political angle that Catherine has referenced to me it was really really key that we stopped minoritizing those issues that were that pertain to these groups of people and we started to see them as part of a global conversation 
Um, and so um, the, the term global majority was about moving in from the margins, those issues pertaining to people that were either minoritized or racialized um, within local context. And of course, in London, it was really key because as part of the London Challenge Initiative, the boroughs that were being focused on in London for London Challenge actually had um, a majority of uh, mm. Black um, and Asian um, students and um, staff. Yeah. So they were talking about minority and actually, they were the majority within those London boroughs, never mind the majority in terms of being part of the global majority. So that really was the reason why I, I needed that term. And I, and I think those same reasons are still needed today in terms of in, in, in 2020, um, that we need to move in from the margins, the conversations about minorities, because they're not minorities they're actually part of the global majority. And if we deal with their issues, we're actually going to be um, dealing with issues that pertain to everyone. Yeah, yeah. So in the context of Black Lives Matters then, which is really, I think, so key. I mean, it's the defining, uh, one of the defining things that has happened in 2020, apart from the pandemic, is what's happened with Black Lives Matters. Do you think in the context of, of uh, that movement, uh, how do you think that this term and the way that we're talking now and thinking about uh, uh, race, how do you think that, does it take the dial forward in conversations about race? How, you know, how do you see that happening? And I've, that's a question to all of you really. So I, I don't know, I'll, I'll, ask, um, I'll ask Catherine first to come in. Yeah, I think there's a there's a combination that's happening, which is interesting. If I bring the health lens to this between Black Lives Matter as a movement and the COVID-19 pandemic. We know with our head, right, the analysis piece that the COVID pandemic lays bare starkly inequalities that yeah, yeah. map so closely to race. And I think it's the combination of seeing that and experiencing it and experiencing bluntly the death that has come with that, the grief and the loss mm. that has come with that, that has provided energy and fuel and a, 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 a moment of almost righteous indignation, not just around issues relating to race, but around people saying this time it has to be different. And that, that what's been interesting about that, I think, is strategically how that has been positioned as something that we all, and in particular, white people, because of the privilege and the structural advantages that we have, that we all must act in response to that. That's been felt particularly keenly in you know, the NHS compared to any environment I've worked on, worked in before. And yet, um, and Joe, maybe there's, you know, things that you could contribute here as well from, from a position of having worked at a senior level for a large you know, number of years in different organisations. There's a nervousness that I observe 
to know what to do with that. So there's an understanding of a narrative that silence is not an option. There's an understanding of the fact that if we choose not to speak, we are actively reinforcing privilege through the fact that we even have that choice to decide whether we will engage or not. And yet, and yet, a hunger to know how we talk about these issues, to want to almost ensure the impossible, which is that we don't misspeak, and therefore a silence that follows that. Um, and it's been interesting to observe how Prana Issar is a good example of this, the chief people officer in the NHS, um, and she's Indian by, uh, by birth and heritage. And she says that once it is a privilege for me to have this platform, the most senior person of color in the National Health Service, and yet that people will look to me always to instigate and to approve the language and to exert leadership on it is also exhausting. Um, I don't know, does that resonate, Joe, with, with what you've seen and experienced and, and Rosemary too? Absolutely, Catherine, very, very similar um, situation, both from my own experience, but also um, from discussions with uh, leaders in the sectors that we work with at the moment, that combination of um, wanting things to be different, wanting not to lose this moment uh, and wanting to change things combined with that absolute fear of saying or doing the wrong thing and being afraid that in talking about it, because language is uh, something that can both infuse but also alienate, people get very caught up on, I don't really know how to have the conversations even. Um, and I think you know, one of the most useful bits of advice um, we've had ourselves is, is, is to just recognise that this is a very contested space language wise. Mm. Um, and that the starting point is to um, work within your organisation with um, black colleagues and talk to them about the language that they want to use. We did a straw poll last week of um, participants on our Black and Asian Leadership mm. Initiative mm. Um, about the terminology they preferred. And there was a split view amongst that group. So that there, there will be no right way of talking about this. Mm. But the important thing is to have the conversation and then to explain why you're using the language that you're using. Um, but I think for, for senior leaders, I think the other really big issue for people, and it is a luxury that white leaders have that black people don't have, which is this idea that you can choose to prioritise or not prioritise discussing race and taking anti-racist action. Um, you can choose to see it as a task. Uh, and that is not the situation that any black colleague can have because it is with them all the time. And I think that's probably in some ways even more fundamental an issue than some of the language we use. It's the sort of headspace we go into it with. That resonates with you, Rosemary. Oh, oh abso absolutely, Joe. Um, both what you and um, Catherine have said. 
um, resonate and make a lot of sense um, to me as somebody who is now having um, much more honest conversations with my white colleagues about race. Um, that's what I found that the 2020, the collision between um, COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter has created a new space where I'm having much more honest conversations um, with white colleagues about, about race. And it's really interesting um, in, in discussing this conversation that we were gonna have we're gonna have with each other. Um, Sherry made me think about something and, and um, actually the most honest conversation I'm having now are with white men. And I actually feel that I've, um, I'm, I've, I've had more courageous conversations with my white female colleagues over the years. That means that we're kind of ready for this conversation now, if you like. But for the white male colleagues that I've had, it's been a completely new, almost, you know, out of the block starting point in terms of being really, really honest about race. So I, I, I think that's, that's, you know, absolutely key. I think the other thing that I'd say as well is that um, as black people, we live our lives through the prism of race. Mm -hmm. So um, we're always confronted with the reality of being racialized yeah. from, from birth through to death. So um, for us, the, 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 the language of how we think about our lives, um, our, our children's lives and so on, is always racialized. And so for us, we, we have been using terminology amongst ourselves, if you like, to try and redress that minoritization and that always comparing to the white norm. And now it's like Black Lives Matter has exposed a light on that. And we're having to have those conversations with our white colleagues mm -hmm. and, and, and our white friends. So it, it, it's like Black Lives Matter has been a, a, a conversation from I was born. You know, we've been talking about the fact that our lives don't matter and that, uh, 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 you, you know, our lives have been used and um, commoditized mm -hmm. um, to create, um, you know, a, a sort of third world, like a kind of reservation where we sit so that the rest of the world can be normal and, um, you know, and just be. And so now we, we're having that conversation about our lives mattering with the rest of the world and particularly with white people. Yeah. But Black Lives Matter is just a, a, a term that for us has been there forever because it's been part of our narrative. Yeah, Rosemary, I was really interested to hear that I think that um, in your conversations, you feel that um, the most interesting conversations, courageous conversations you're having is with white men um, and that white women are ready and they have been primed and, and working towards this for some time. But more generally, you know, for all of you, as you go out into the work that you do with leaders uh, across public sector uh, or even internationally, uh, in, I, I just wonder, do you think if you, you, you'll get any pushback or resistance uh, when you introduce this term in 
you know, big settings. Um, I know there's always a kind of a warning in your head to say, shall I introduce it here if there's an accepted term already? How, how do you think this, that we will take this conversation and the term global majority beyond this discussion that we're having today uh, into, into really practical ways of, you know, embedding it in everyday use and thinking so that it may have an impact that will change things. Um, what, what's the pushback and resistance you're anticipating and how are you going to overcome it? The, this is for all of you. So Catherine, maybe from an NHS perspective, start first. Sherry, I was also interested in what Rosemary was saying about the, the conversation with women. And I think we could all make different guesses as to why it might be anecdotally that women feel more ready for that conversation, which relates to our own oppression on the basis of, of gender and sex. Um, but there's an interesting point within that, I think, for white people, which is when I feel nervous about these conversations, when I feel discomfort, when I feel a fear that I'll be misunderstood, one of the things I fall back on is to remember that I contain multitudes, that I am a white person who has white privilege, and mm -hmm. I am a woman, and I am the mother of uh, dual heritage children, and, and, and. And I think if we can access the multitudes of our own narrative, regardless of whether those relate to directly to black experience or Asian experience, but they relate to a sense of the other. Mm. I mm. think it equips us to almost bridge in empathy and respect, respect for the experience of this conversation that we're sharing here. And that is not to say it's analogous but it is to say that when I try to imagine, which is all I can do, what Rosemary has described of living a life that is racialized by others, I can touch back to those moments. In 2010, I stood for parliament and in my hometown and in one of the final hustings, members of the English Defence League came and questioned me about whether I was a Paddy or whether I was a British candidate, you know. For me, they're, they're moments. They're not a lived reality day to day, but they're enough of an insight that if I focus on them, how they felt, what, how I responded, that I can develop some empathy that supports me in this conversation. So maybe as a practical thing, that's something that all of us can do. Um, that will help. Um, in terms of the, the pushback, do you know, part of me wants to say on that, let's see, <laughs> rather than try and preempt all the barriers that are the reasons why we can't tell stories like the stories I've just told, why we can't use the term black and global majority. Let's see, then let's come back in six months and see whether we got that pushback and talk about how we equip ourselves better for the next phase of remaking those stories, remaking that language, rather than getting too fixated on how I think white men or whoever might react. Because in a way, I guess I feel like that might be another form of othering. 
And when Rosemary talked, you didn't talk about white men as a block. You talked about people who were choosing through discomfort to engage in what you're saying. And I think that bit of respect for us as individual people is, is really key. Yeah, thank you, uh, Catherine. That was, uh, I really like that. Let's see. <laughs> That's a great, <laughs> great attitude. Uh, it's almost like bring it on uh, because this is the right way to go. And it's, you know, you, you have the courage to say, let's see. Yeah. Um, anything from you, Joe, on that? I'm with uh, Catherine on the let's see. I think language language matters. Uh, it's so important. And the uh, discomfiture, but also empowerment of the term global majority, I think, totally lends itself to uh, introducing a different type of conversation about language. Uh, so it's out of the academic sphere it's out of the um issues that people get very caught up in which is i don't know what the terminology of the moment is which is going to be best to use or am i sounding very old-fashioned now if i'm talking about some, something else i think because it stands on its own merit in so, so many ways it, it's a phrase that we should use um, as a means of having the conversation about language but having the conversation about race as well um, yeah. so yeah that's where I'm Thank going you. with it. Thank you. We're uh, out of time here, um, but it's been a really interesting conversation. And um, and I just want to thank all of you, uh, particularly Rosemary, who brought us this term that global majority, that we could have this conversation around uh, language and how we use the language of global majority uh, in the work that we do and start to shift the dial on some of the conversations that happen in our everyday uh, life and work. Uh, thank you, Rosemary Campbell-Stevens, MBE, Catherine Pereira and Joe Davidson. If you've enjoyed this podcast, listeners, tune in to our second episode, Leadership Paradigms. Mm -hmm.